Amen. Thank you guys for leading worship like that. And thank you, church, for worshiping so well. I, it's usually after worship sets like that that I, I'm just embarrassed to get up here because the tone for worship has been set so well. So, Hunter, thanks for making me look bad here because actually for us doing well. Do I need to adjust? Something? We didn't do a sound check on me beforehand, so there we go. All right, thank you, guys. Well, especially after worship time, because I hate to bring up something mundane, but uh, it helps get us ready for what we're going to look at today. Um, I am a, um, a baseball fan and a college football fan, and uh, this has not been a good week for me. I'm a, I'm, I'm a Baylor football, I'm a Baylor graduate, and Baylor was supposed to, to, to win. The, by the way, if you don't follow college football, just take a nap for a moment or... It won't be long, okay? It's going to set us up, trust me, for where we're going. Or we actually have some coloring pages that we have for children, so if you want to go and grab a coloring page real quick. If... All right, excellent. What team? Oh, Alabama. Alabama. My brother went to Georgia. Eh. All right, sorry. <laughs> um, but anyway, Baylor's supposed to win the Big 12. They're 3-3 three and three now. They lost on Thursday night. Uh, Fresno State was supposed to win the Mountain West. They're, what, I think they're like 2-3 and three now or something, or... But they won. They did win last night, so that was good. I'm a Braves fan. The Braves lost, but the Dodgers lost, so that was good. So anyway, um, we'll, we'll, you know, I'm sorry, Lord, I apologize for you. No, I'm not going to say that. All right, never mind. Uh, but here's why I bring this up: that uh, every once in a while, any of these teams, they have years that they're good, and then they have years that they are referred to as rebuilding years. Okay, the Giants are in a rebuilding year. They did, you know, had their best season ever last year, and then just, I, I, they didn't show up for a lot of games this year, all right? And Baylor's the, the same way. Um, years ago, um, you may know, if you follow pro ball, you know the name Matt Rule, who just got fired from, from South Carolina. But he became the, the coach at Baylor for a while. And he, he, when he came, the year before, they had been 11, they, or his first year there, they were 1-11, and 11, and his second year there, they were 11-1. and 1. So that was the idea of a rebuilding year. So, you know, I'm going to take my glasses. I can see you guys better. So don't let it freak you out, okay, for me to not have glasses here. But I'll still be able to read my notes, but I can see you better. There's glare on my glasses from the, from the spots here. So, and I like to see the faces of people when we're talking. So the reason I bring this up is that Fresno Church is in kind of a rebuilding year. Now, a rebuilding year doesn't mean you don't sit and do nothing. A rebuilding year means you still play the games. You still get there and you win what you can. But it's a time of looking and seeing where we are and, and rebuilding. And so I mention that because today we're going to look at a passage in the Bible that is exactly about rebuilding in a couple of ways. It's in the book of Nehemiah. So I want to ask you to open your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 1. We're going to look at some, it's a longer passage today out of chapter 1 and chapter 2. It's also, it'll be on the screens I believe. It's also in your, if you go to fresnochurch.info, it'll be there also. But, um, so go ahead and do that. While you're doing that, let's have a word of prayer. Father, we just really want to thank you. Thank you for this time of ministry we have together. Thank you for this time of worship together. Father, thank you for where I already see you at work in this church. And Father, I appreciate it so much. And Father, I just consider it an honor to be allowed to be a part of this church for a short time. And Father, we trust you now to guide us, not only in looking into your word today, but to guide us into your preferred future, Father. Let your Holy Spirit speak to us today in the service and always. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Now, the books of Ezra and Nehemiah are books that you don't look at very often, probably. I mean, probably, if you're, if you're into Scripture memory, you don't probably have, a, probably have a lot of verses memorized out of those verses. It's just ones that, in fact, sometimes people have trouble finding them. It, you have to go to the table of contents to find Ezra and Nehemiah. But let me tell you what it's about real quick, since we're not that familiar with it. And if you are familiar with it, I don't mean, don't mean to be talking down to you. But the books of Ezra and Nehemiah tell the story of the rebuilding of life in Jerusalem after the, the countries were destroyed by the, uh, first by the Assyrian Empire and then by the Persian or the Babylonian and then Persian Empire. So this is about the time that the, the Babylonians have now been overthrown by the Persians. You can read about that in the book of Daniel if you want to. But um, so they're now been scattered all over the world. And it's an interesting thing of why that, how that works. What happens is when the Babylonians or the Persians would take over a country, what they would do is they would scatter the people. They would take some of the leading people of the city and move them elsewhere so they couldn't cause problems. And they would take people that were the lower class citizens and give them more positions of responsibility so that they would go like, you know, it's not so bad having the Babylonians or the Persians in charge. I'm doing a little bit better now. And then because the Jewish people were all scattered all over the place, they couldn't like, they couldn't um, like get massive groups together to begin to overthrow the government. So there's more to that story, and as, as we get closer to Christmas, we'll learn a little more about that, about what the Jews did during their time of captivity. But here's what's going on. So Jerusalem is sort of in ruins. The wall's been broken down. And so the books of Ezra and Nehemiah talk about three guys that come back to help Jerusalem. First, there's a man named Zerubbabel. He comes back to be the new governor of the Persian uh, province of Judea, where Jerusalem is. And you might, his name, you might even hear the word Babylon, his name, Zerubbabel, Babel. It means one who was from Babylon, one who was planted in Babylon. And so it's an interesting reminder of their past, but he comes there to help start rebuilding Jerusalem. After him, Ezra comes. Now, Ezra was a scribe, a studier of the law, and he came back to help restore the Jewish law. So Zerubbabel was rebuilding the government. Ezra was trying to rebuild the, the, the following of God's law there. And while Ezra is still there, this guy Nehemiah arrives. And Nehemiah had an important role. He was the cupbearer or servant of the king of Persia. And he returned to help them rebuild the temple and the walls of Jerusalem. So, um, uh, no, sorry, Ezra, uh, sorry, I got that wrong. Zerubbabel was returning to the temple. I got ahead of myself here. So um, Nehemiah comes back to rebuild the wall, and he hears that things aren't going well. So let's jump into chapter 1, starting with verse 4, and hear what, Jerub what Zerubbabel heard. Now, as the story goes, we haven't talked about this, that, that one of his brothers, it doesn't say whether it's a, a flesh and blood, blood brother or just a brother in the Jewish community, but comes to, comes to Susa, where J Nehemiah is living, and gives him this story about what happens there. And it said it was not going great. Basically, we're ashamed and we're in sad shape. It said, when I heard these words, I sat down and wept. And I mourned for a number of days, fasting and praying before the God of the heavens. I said, and here's his prayer, Lord, the God of the heavens, the great and awe-inspiring God who keeps his gracious covenant with those who love him and keep his commands, let your eyes be open and your ears be attentive to your servant's prayer that I now pray to you night and day for your servants, the Israelites. I confess the sins that we have committed against you. Both I and my father's family have sinned. We have acted corruptly toward you and have not kept your commands, statutes, ordinance that you gave your servant Moses. 
please remember what you commanded your servant Moses. If you are faithful, unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and carefully observe my commands, even though your exiles were banished to the farthest horizon, which did happen to them, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place where I have chosen my name to dwell. He's talking about Jerusalem there. They are your servants and your people. You're redeemed. You redeem them by your great power and strong hand. Lord, please let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to that of your servants who delight to revere your name. Give your servant success today and grant him compassion in the presence of this man, that man being the king. And he says, at that time, I was the king's cupbearer. So we're going to look at one of the first things, if you're going to rebuild something, if you're going to re redirect, if you're going to relook at where you are and what your situation's like and what you need to do, the first place always to start is prayer. Now, we believe prayer is important. We encourage all of our church members to have daily quiet times or devotional times, to pray regularly, to pray in the Spirit. One of our songs about needing Jesus, not every day, not every hour, but every moment, needing Jesus. And so, you know, that's that idea of being in, pre in, in, in communication with Him and in presence all day. But there also is time for very specific, directed prayers. And this is what Nehemiah did. And so we're going to look at Nehemiah's prayer here first in verses 4 through 11. First, you want to see that his prayer was a prayer of desperation. It was a desperate prayer. Listen to the description of Nehemiah's emotional state. He said, he wept and mourned and fasted for days. Now, even though this recorded prayer covers only about six and a half verses, Verse 4 makes it clear that he prayed for days and days and days. So this is definitely a prayer of desperation. His sorrow was so great that in the next chapter, when he goes before the king, the king looks at him and says, Nehemiah, what is the matter with you? You look like you're sick, but I can tell this is sickness of the heart. That it was his desperation was so strong that it could be seen on his face. Have you ever seen somebody, a friend of yours, and you walked up and you just tell when you first glance at them, something's wrong. All right? And that's what happened with Nehemiah. It showed on his face so much that his boss, who did not believe in God, said something is wrong with you. In fact, here's what the king says. Why is your face sad? Though you are not ill, this is nothing but sadness of heart. Now, as I've heard, and if you're listening online right now, I'm going to talk about some things I've heard about this church, and don't worry, this is, this is a great church, okay? I want to make that clear. But I've heard of some painful times in the past, and I can see some of you tearing up. I just talked about there were some hurts here, and to be honest, that's, that's true for most churches, okay? If you're in a church where there's not some kind of pain and not some hurt, it's because there's nobody there, all right? In fact, as a church, one of the things we want to do is we want to reach broken people because we're the ones that need to hear the good news, by the way, all people are broken, okay, just so you know that, all right? We all are broken. If there are people, they're broken. But we want them to come in and we'll be a part of that. But there's been pain here, and I was not here during those times. But I've heard some frustration, some hurts, some disappointments. And what I know that in, in that is there was some sorrow. But you know what? Sorrow sometimes is a good thing. Sorrow is a chance for us to turn around and begin that prayer of desperation to God. And whatever's happened in the past, 
I think now is the time for us to have that desperate prayer before God. Not because we're on the verge of dying as a church. That's not, this is a good church, all right? I'm going to say that again. It's a good church. I can know there's lots of great things God is doing here. But Nehemiah was on the verge of doing something new, something big. And because he was not just focused on the past, but focused on that future, he had this prayer of desperation to say, God, there's something you want me to do, and I so much want to focus on that, and I want to be a part of it, and I want to get it right. And so that's what our church needs to be doing. So for that reason, the first thing I'm going to say is, every Wednesday night, right here in this room, at 6.30, we have a prayer time. I want to invite you all to be a part of it. It's not a preaching time. You don't hear another sermon from me. All right, but we sit, we share together a little bit about our days to catch up a little bit, and then we go into small group prayer. And here's the thing, you don't have to pray out loud if you don't want to. Nobody's going to look at you strange or judge you because you don't. But it's a time to come and spend an hour, hour and a half at the most, just focused in on what God wants to do in our church. And so I want to invite you all to be a part of that. I know some of you can't make it at that point. And if, there, if there's enough people that can't make it at 6.30, maybe we need to have another alternate prayer time for people. But right now, at Wednesday at 6.30, I'm inviting you all to be a part of that and to be a part. We don't put it online because it's, it's an intimate time with our church, even though there may be 20 or 25, 30 people here. All right, but just come and try it and let's pray together. But I also want to encourage you to be praying individually, praying for our church and for God's direction in our church as we get ready to move forward. We need everyone praying for God's direction and maybe still for some healing for some people. And I'm gonna ask that each of our small groups that meets, whether it be the senior adults, whether it be the, 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 the students, whether it be any small group at all that meets at any time, that you take part of your time together and pray together. And a prayer of desperation is one where we're really just focusing in on prayer. And this is a sidebar real quick, okay? I know what it's like in lost. How many of you have been in a small group before, Christian small group before? All right, a lot of, I know what happens with prayer requests, all right? That we sit there and we'll take like 15 minutes of taking prayer requests and then five minutes of praying, all right? So I'm gonna encourage you to focus on less of taking the prayer request and more focusing on missional prayer. God, what do you want us to do? What lives are you wanting us to be a part of? And, and you changing that kind of thing to focus on that kind of stuff. And we'll be talking with the small group leaders more about that as we go on. So we need that prayer of desperation. Second thing about this prayer that I see is it was a prayer of confession. We see that in verses six and seven. Nehemiah devoted a good portion of his prayer to confession. And there were several parts of this. First, he, com he confessed the collective sins of his people. And I think this is very important for us all, especially when a church has had some difficult or painful days. It's easy for us to see the sins of others. All right? In fact, if you're married, it's probably so easy for you to see the sins of your spouse than it is to see your own sins. All right? And this is the time for us to move back and say, all right, we need to look at what we've done wrong, what, how we've been a part of it. See, it's easy for us to see the, the sins of those other people, whether it be real or imagined. And we can think sometimes where we had a leader or we had a, a friend or somebody that disappointed us in this church and they did something wrong. That's not the focus here. It's to remember our collective sins. And Nehemiah admitted that his people, the Jewish people, as a group had done wrong in God's eyes. And often... We just try to, when we're thinking about the past, we just try to figure out who was at fault. 
And we do what I like to call the the finger-pointing polka. Okay, who was it? Who's the one? That's not really a polka, I know, but it had alliteration there, all right? So, um, but instead of that, let's focus on our collective fault, uh, responsibility. You know what? And like it or not, I'm a part of your tribe now. And so my own collective sins come into part of this too. I've got to deal with the mistakes that I've made. I've made a few mistakes just in the three weeks I've been here already. And I'll make you a promise, I'm going to make a few more. Okay? Uh, and some of that is God forming into me new things, and some of that may be God teaching you to forgive. I don't know which one it might be, but, but we're all going to make some more. But, but to look and confess our sins before God so that we come together as corporately cleanly as we can to be a part of what God wants to do in the future. Second, in, in, in his conf- prayer of confession, that he, he confessed his personal sins. At the end of verse 6, he says, I and my Father's house have sinned. And if we're going to move forward as a church, We all have to work on ourselves and deal with anything that God wants us to change. Now, I know this is true on a personal level. Um, I've had many times in my past where I've damaged a a family member's relationship with them, and it was easy for me to see where the other person messed up, misinterpreted, whatever. And what I've had to learn and what I'm still learning is to focus first on where I messed up. And if they misunderstood what I did or misinterpreted whatever, that's not important. What I've got to figure out is own what I did wrong. And if we get the other part fixed, great, later, that's that's fine. But if not, that's all right. I'll have to live with that because I can only change myself. All right? And if we don't do that, we wind up letting conversation deteriorate into arguments. We wind up, you know, not seeing what, what, you know, where we've done wrong. But that's the most important part to figure out where I messed up. So if we're going to move forward as a church, God needs to point out where we need to repair and to forgive, and he needs to point out where each of us individually need to repair and grow in our relationship. So I'm asking you to join us in this journey and prayerfully invite God to examine our lives regularly. Third, about this prayer, Nehemiah mentioned specific sins. So he prayed about collective sins, personal sins, and about specific sins. And uh, that was in this uh, verse 7. He says, he clearly knew the things that we've done wrong. He said, we've acted very corruptly against you. We've not kept your commandments. We've not kept your statutes, your ordinances. He says, the things that you told Moses about. And that's one of the things about uh, confessing things and forgiving is that you can't just make it all better, okay? Teenagers, let me... Talk to you for a second. If you have a friend that messes up with you, okay, that hurts your feelings, if they just come to you and say, oh, you know what, I'm sorry, I, I did some stupid stuff, let's just be friends again, okay? You're like, forget you. No, I want to hear, you want to hear them say, hey, when I did this, that hurt your feelings. And I'm really sorry, and I should not have done that, and I'm really sorry that I hurt your feelings. And then the other day when you said this, and I said that back to you, and that was just a dumb thing to say, and I want, you want them to be very specific about it. God's the same way, not just to say, oh, I've messed up, I'll, be, I'll do better. God wants to hear, to know that you know what you did wrong and what you should have done differently. So it's, well, think about laundry, okay? I, I admit, I didn't learn to do laundry until I went away to college, okay? But I learned very quickly that I just could not take my duffel bag full of clothes and just put the duffel bag into the, into the washing machine, Okay? It would mess up the washing machine, throw off the bearings, and it would not close, would not get clean. But you wind up pulling them all out separately, you know, and, and, and getting them and pre-treating whatever you need to do and stuff like that. 
Guys, if you don't want pre-treating minks, don't worry about it. Guys don't have to do that, okay? That's, all right. I'm sorry, that was sexist. I, I got to stay with my notes here. See, I don't have stupid things like that in my notes, and I got to stay here with it. That's where I'm going to get in trouble right there is, okay, uh, the old white guy was sexist. All right, sorry, I didn't mean to do that. Guys, we all should take care of our own stuff. Remember that. All right, so, um, so don't just say to God, I've messed up. You know what it is, so please forgive me for all of it. We can't do that anymore like that. All right? And so, and again, that applies to other people. If there's somebody in this situation that you've wronged or that you have misinterpreted their actions or whatever, it may be time to go to them and say, hey, I did this. This was my impression of what you did, and, and I even shared that with a few other people, and I'm really sorry that I did that. So that we learn to express our sorrow, ask for forgiveness, and admit to the other person where we've done wrong. So that's Nehemiah's prayer of confession. Then his prayer is also a prayer of affirmation. It's a prayer of affirmation. See, God, I mean, Nehemiah affirmed his faith in God. In verse 5, he calls God the Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant and faithfulness to those who love him and keep his commandments. This isn't just in Nehemiah buttering up God so that God will respond positively. God can't be affected like that. It's an affirmation, it's, I, it's Nehemiah's recognition that I am before a holy and righteous God who doesn't mess up. And I know, God, that if I come before you and I admit these things, and I confess these things, and I ask you for help, that you are going to help me because you've shown yourself to be that in the past. And if we don't believe that God can and will lead us into his perfect future for us, then we're unlikely to be able to see that perfect future and definitely we won't be able to enter into it. Um, there's a popular expression that says seeing is believing. But in the Christian life, quite often, believing is seeing. And so in this time of prayer like that, we need to begin to try to see what God wants us to be in the future. Because we believe that that's where he wants us to go. And fourth in his prayer, it was a prayer of petition. Now, petition is just a fancy word for asking, all right? But I liked, I ha, you know, it's a preacher thing. Okay, I had to end everything with a T-I-O-N, all right? So, so instead of a prayer of asking, I had to do a prayer of petition there, all right? So this is the fourth thing. Nehemiah makes his petition before God. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this part because we're usually pretty good at that. I bet if you look, most of your prayers are asking things for yourself or for someone else. All right, and I want to encourage you to make part of your prayer time worshiping God and, you know, that kind of thing, and not just asking for requests, but there is a place for that. And so Nehemiah asked God for specific help in what he wanted to do, and that was he was going to head back to Jerusalem and to help rebuild the wall there in Jerusalem. Now, if God wants us to do something, God wants us to continue existing as a church, and I believe he does, all right? Say, so why would you say something like that? Because I always ask churches like that, you know, why are you here? What does God have a reason for it? Are you here at this address by accident? Are you here because God just looked down one day and went, well, they're still here? Wow, I was surprised by that. No, God's put us here and kept us alive because he has a purpose and a place for us. And prayer is how we start finding that new place. This is, again, this is not saying this church has not done wonderful things in the past. This church has had amazing days in the past. I've heard about some of the wonderful things you guys have done and I'm like, where, how have I not heard, even heard of this church before? I know why, it's because I've been all over the rest of the state doing things. But, 
This is not a, so I'm not saying the past has been bad, but it's a time to rebuild. And here's why prayers is important. This next picture, this is a picture of, uh, at, at the Kennedy Space Center uh, on Cape Canaveral. And this is actually Launchpad 39A. I looked this up. That's Launchpad 39A. It's about 22, almost 2,300 square feet. Okay, so that's a huge launch pad. It would, uh, the elevated launch pound would rise almost 40 feet above the ground. But what we can't see there is below ground, it extends down about 80 feet. So there's about eight stories below ground of reinforced concrete and then 40 feet above of this reinforced concrete. Now, here's the reason for that. If, um, if this is standard construction here for commercial building, this is probably a six-inch concrete slab right here. All right? And the six-inch concrete slab would pretty much crack and vaporize under the weight of the rocket and the blast of the takeoff. That's, this would not be a sufficient launch pad for a rocket, but 120 feet of concrete would be what it says. See, just, this couldn't even support the weight of a SpaceX Falcon 9 rocket. Now, if we, don't, if we want to want, launch bottle rockets, we can launch them off of this. I mean, don't. That's, Hunter, that's not an activity for the youth group Thursday night, okay? I'm just, I've, I've learned, got to watch Hunter, okay? I've been one time in the youth group, and, and I was just scared. I just, they wanted me to get down on my knees. I thought, I will never get back up if I get down on my knees. What is going on here? I didn't want to be telling you, all right, help me up, please. All right. So think of prayer as our launch pad. If we want to launch bottle rocket ministries of the future, then we don't need much prayer. But if we want to launch God-sized ministry in the future, we need God-sized and God-focused prayer. And so that's what I'm encouraging you guys to do during this time. All right, so that's Nehemiah's prayer. Now let's look at Nehemiah's process. And to do that, we're going to turn over to chapter 2. And this is after Nehemiah has asked permission from the king a leave of absence to go to Jerusalem. And so we're going to pick up in verse 11 and see what it says there. So he says, After I arrived in Jerusalem, I had been there three days. I got up at night and I took a few men with me. I didn't tell anyone what my God had laid on my heart to do for Jerusalem. The only animal I took was the one I was riding. I went out at night through the valley gate toward the serpent's well and the dung gate, and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that had been broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. So you can see, it's a pretty rough area right there, okay? Look at that. I mean, the walls are broken down, the gates destroyed by fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate, to the king's pool, but further down it became too narrow for my animal to go through. So I went up by night, by way of the valley, and inspected the wall, and I headed back and entered through the valley gate, so the way he came in, and I returned. The officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, for I had not yet told the Jews the priests, the nobles, the officials, or the rest of those who would be doing the work. So I said to them, you see the trouble we're in. Jerusalem lies in ruins. Its gates have been burned. Come, let us rebuild Jerusalem's wall so that we will no longer be a disgrace. I told them how the gracious hand of my God had been on me and what the king had said to me. They said, let's start rebuilding. And their hands were strengthened to do the work. All right, did I go further here okay I couldn't remember if I put this part in here so I did go through 20 all right so when Sambalat the Horonite Tobiah the Ammonite official and Geshem the Arab heard about this they mocked and despised us 
and said, what are you doing? Uh, what is this you're doing? Are you rebelling against the king? They thought rebuilding the temple, rebuilding the walls, that they would then rebel, okay? I gave them this reply. The God of heavens is the one who will grant us success. We, his servants, will start building, but you have no share, right, or restore it claim in Jerusalem. All right, I'll tell you why I added that part in a little bit. So here's Nehemiah's process then. The first part of this process is to prepare yourself, okay, to prepare. So Nehemiah spent three days in Jerusalem before he got to work. Now, we don't know exactly what he did during that time. Uh, more than likely we, that um, he might have been just resting up, recovering from the journey because, again, you can't jump on American or Delta Airlines and just fly to Jerusalem in his day, okay? So it was an arduous journey. So, um, in fact, it wasn't probably an uncommon practice because in Ezra, when Ezra comes, it says, in Ezra 8, 32, it says, we came to Jerusalem and we remained there for three days. So three days must have been like sort of the standard time of, of resting up, uh, getting over the donkey lag, I guess. I don't know what it would, what it would be at that point, but, but I guess that could be a real thing, couldn't it? All right? So, which I would say, if, if we see the team gets back, what, at, at, at O-Dark 30, midnight? Saturday night, if they're not here Sunday morning, we're going to forgive them. Now, we would like you to be here Sunday morning, all right, but if we not, we understand, okay, that it's, uh, it might take you three days to get back, o to get over that journey. So that's what he's doing, but, but um, here's the idea. Sometimes when we face a difficult situation, churches a lot of times want to just start grabbing for the first thing they can find. And I can tell you, I've worked with churches that, where they got in trouble because they had a pastor leave, and then they just looked for the next person they could find. Let's just, got to get a pastor, got to get a pastor. And then six months later, they're going, why did we get that pastor? Why did we get that pastor, all right? And so sometimes you got to just sit down and, and take, you know, and, and just get prepared. Get emotionally prepared, get spiritually prepared, get relationally repaired, so that we know that we get ready for the work for God to do. Um, I can tell you, as in, in ministry, there are times that I've gotten up to preach, and I have just been emotionally exhausted. And I'll get the words out, but I have no idea what the Spirit was doing in the lives of the people because I was just so unattuned to it because I was not fully prepared. I was exhausted for some reason. Now, don't be too harsh on me. That happens to every minister at some point. It does happen to all of us. But I'm just telling you, as we're not prepared as we need to be, we won't get what's going on. So... Um, so when a church goes through a tough situation, it's not like we're in an airplane and the pilot just had a heart attack and we're all grabbing for the controls, you know, because we're about to crash. That's not about to happen. By the way, you know what would happen if a plane was going down and everybody who's not experienced with flying a plane starts grabbing for the controls. It's just going to go down faster, all right? So, so, that's not, so, so we are going to take a little bit of time to figure out where we are, who we are, and where we want to go. In fact, that's what I'm, I'm working with a team of leaders on Sunday afternoon. This afternoon, we're going to be looking at who we are as a church. What makes us unique? What, what, what is it that we really value as a church? Or we're going to ask this question. Why would anybody drive past another church to come to Fresno Church on Sunday morning? Why would we invest here? You know, and it's not just that we're a friendly church, because you know what? There, there, there are very few unfriendly churches out there. Most churches are friendly. It's not just because we preach the Bible. Because most of the churches preach the Bible. Well, what makes us unique? So we're going to look at who we are. What is unique about us that God wants us to exist as Fresno Church? Then we're going to look at wh where we are. All right? That 
where our people are, where we all are spiritually, where we are in our community here, that kind of thing. And they're going to look at where we want to go. And once we do that, and I'm just letting you know, this is our process we'll be going through, that we figure out where we are, and we figure out where God wants us to go, then we know what kind of pastor to hire, to call. All right? We look for a person who can get us from here to here. And we'll let them worry about what's the path to take and the journey to get us there. But we know if this, we, they would call this person and lead us there, we can follow that person with confidence. So that's the process we're going here, why we're taking a time to this. So that's what Nehemiah did, is that he spent time looking at this. We're going to look at things like bylaws and stuff like that. And, um, you know, and again, talking about churches that, um, I worked at the church, one church that had a split, and then they, then after that, they lost their pastor, they had to dismiss the pastor. The only remaining leader quickly rewrote, rewrote the bylaws, sent them to me to take a look at it, and I'm like, these are crazy bylaws, this is going to kill you as a church. And he like, well, I don't care, this is what we want. Five years later, the church was down to five people, him and his family, okay, because they just made things too quick, and that church is effectively disbanded now. That's not going to happen here. But we're also going to make sure that we're following the right way. So I'm not going to push this more quickly than I think necessary. But I won't take any longer than necessary. All right? Because my job is not to so much as to be your pastor, though I am for right now, but it's also to help you find, prepare for and find the new pastor. So prepare yourself. Second, process the problem. That's what Nehemiah did next. After three days, Nehemiah made his assessment of the situation. He went out at night and he went with only a few people. Now, we don't know why that could have been. It could have been because he was anticipating opposition and he didn't want to, the opposition to know his plans because we see later in the passage that these guys, uh, Tobiah, Sambalot, um, that they were fighting against him. So it may have been that. Or it may have been he just didn't want to get everybody else's opinion right away. He wanted to see for himself what it is. So um, while he wasn't a completely disinterest, disinterested third party, he wanted to have his most pure and neutral assessment as possible. Now, see, when people have lived through a situation like this, they always develop agendas. Now, agendas aren't always bad. I've heard a few agendas from some of you already. I mean, I've, I won't mention them, but I've heard several different agendas like, this is what we need to do during this time. And they may be right. But we're going to take the time to figure out if that's what it's, what's right. Because sometimes you've got to take that, that outside view sometimes just to know the right steps. Now, this does not mean that I'm going to hide things from the congregation. I'm not going to be doing secret stuff. I'm, going to be, I'm a pretty open guy. I'm going to be reporting to the board, to Red and to Jeremy, everything that we do. I'll answer any questions that you have. But it means I'm not going to like, open up the fire, ho the, the, the fire hydrant and just gush out all the plans at once for you. Because, one, we don't have all the plans right now. But I will keep you posted. But we'll do it at the appropriate time, all right? So, so is we're going to process the problem. Um, and you have to be careful with that because... There was a time in my marriage when uh, I'd be just wondering something. I'd be reading a, a news article on something in Denmark. I actually have a friend whose wife is from, from, um, from uh, the Netherlands, so, you know, that, that, that general region. So I think about that region every once in a while. And uh, so I might say something like, hmm, I wonder what it'd be like to live in Holland. And my wife would be thinking, oh, my gosh, is he about to move our family to Holland? And all I've said is, I wonder what it's like to live in Holland. I don't want to move there. Didn't even want to visit there at the time. But she just like panicked that I was about to, you know, quit my job and move us all to Holland. It's not going to happen. So we're not going to worry about that, okay? All right. Um, Nehemiah also had a principle here. He said that there came a point where I got where I couldn't go any further. 
And so I just had to turn around. I, I, I did all I could. And I've learned you don't have to examine everything, okay? You just don't have to take time to examine everything. So we'll figure out what we need to examine to look at here, but we won't delay it any longer. We're not going to spend months and months and months gazing at our navels and trying to figure out everything that's going on here. We're just going to look at what we need to do to figure things out. Because with any complex system like a church, examining every detail, interviewing every church member, it can result in what's called the classic analysis paralysis. And that is something that really, that really comes up. They found out, for example, if you give people two choices, most people can make a choice. If you give people 12 choices, they freak out. They can't make the choice. All right, so we'll, we'll distill it down. Again, we're not going to hide things from people, but we're just going to examine what we need to do. Um, the company SurveyMonkey that does online surveys discovered this. If they want to do a national survey, they found out that if they survey just 1,000 people at random, that they can come up to that plus or minus three percentage points, which is like the classic. If you can get to plus or minus three percentage points, it's a pretty trustworthy survey. So with a country of 330-something million people, surveying 1,000 can get you to 97% assurance of getting the right answer, of seeing what people are from. So, um, in fact, in the, um, there's a psychologist named John Gottman who's up in Seattle, does uh, marriage therapy. And he was actually known for being able to predict, after interviewing a couple for 15 minutes, he could predict whether, whether they would remain married for the next five years with a 90% accuracy because he learned of what's called thin slice a situation. And that is one of my gifts, actually, I'll tell you that, that I worked on a team and we learned to thin slice church situations pretty, pretty easily. By the way, John Gottman, 90% accuracy if he interviews a couple for 15 minutes. Remarkably, if he interviews a couple for five minutes, he had a 95% accuracy rate. So sometimes it doesn't take a lot to do there, all right? So I will do some thin slicing, but also do the diligent work of getting things together, all right? And then, uh, but my task is not just to present the problem. My task is really more like our third point, which is that Nehemiah presented a plan. And that was his last step here that he did. Okay, after he made his inspection, he gathered the people, he presented the task to them. And it was a simple one. Rebuild the walls. He laid out the situation. This place is desolate. The gates are burned down. The wall is down. We're a disgrace as God's special people. And do you think anyone said, wow, the walls are, I never noticed that. The walls are down. Okay. But you know what? Probably some of them did. It's the funniest thing. I'll go to a church and when I, was, when I spent my years consulting, and I would go to a church, and I remember teaching consulting to a group of pastors at a church we were in in the Bay Area. And I said, it's remarkable how people begin to not notice things. They've been at church for a while. And I said, for example, like, Pastor, how long has that big stain been on the wall? We're in a nice fellowship hall, but there is a stain on the wall over here. And I, the pastor went, huh, um, I don't know. It was here when I got here, I guess. <laughs> he had just gone totally blank to that, to, that, uh, to that stain on the wall. Because when we live in it, just, you know. So my job will be help to point out things maybe we've, we've gotten used to and haven't seen. Easy way to think about that is you ever gotten in somebody's car and like, oh, man, what is that? Is that like three-year-old Chinese food? What is, what is that? And you're like going, and so you, if it's a good friend, it's like, what's that smell? Like, what smell? Because they've gone, what is the term that they, Febreze use, nose blind? 
They've got, so we've gone sometimes church blind, all right? So through these next few months, we'll go through some stuff, and we will work on it together. Here's my very last point I'll make, is the last thing Nehemiah did is he trusted in God. Nehemiah directed him back to God. In verse 18, he related how God had already worked in his own life to bring him to this place of leadership. He says, I told them how the hand of my God had been favorable to me. And I also told him about the king's words to me, about how the king had blessed him in going. And in verse 20, he expressed his full confidence, the God of heaven will make us successful. So what I want us to take away from the book of Nehemiah here. I know it's, Nehemiah is not one of those major, this is not one of those like major stories you're walking away going like, wow, I never knew that. I'm just laying down the nitty gritty for us today. It's not a sermon designed to impress you or to awe you or to wow you. In fact, if you're not committed to this church, it might be one where you say like, yeah, I might visit this church back in a year maybe. I'm not, not ready to go through this. I mean, because it was hard work. If you look through the rest of the book of Nehemiah, they were building the wall. In fact, they were also defending themselves because without that wall, they had no defense. So it says that people were, were, were rebuilding the wall with a trowel in one hand to put down the mortar and stuff and a sword in the other hand to be able to defend themselves. It was hard work. It's moving blocks of stuff like that. <clears throat> Some of what we're going to do is going to be hard work. It is going to be that. But it's all designed to get us to where God wants us to be in the future. I have no idea where that is right now. And you know what the beauty of it is? I don't decide that. We figure out that together as a church. I'm not here to tell you anything of what you're going to do, except that we're going to rebuild, and we're going to figure out how to do it together. So here's what I'm asking you to do as we get ready for this, as we enter into this time. First, I want you to commit to desperate prayer. All right? I want you to make the commitment right now to commit to praying regularly for our church be whatever part of our church you want to pray for. It could be for the staff. It could be for our community. It could be for our future. But commit to praying. In fact, I'm going to say, if you have prayers for this church and it makes your eyes start to water and you tear up some, you're getting close to what we're talking about when we're talking about desperate prayer. To say, God, we, you have called us. You have brought us here together. You have preserved us as Fresno Church. Father, guide us to where you want to be. All right? Also, the second thing is confess any past sins and let go of the sins of others. I've gone to churches before where they just could not forgive the previous pastor. Actually, one church I was at, they couldn't forgive the previous seven pastors. Seven leaders they got rid of. And I wanted to, I wanted to look at this church and go, hmm, these seven, what's the common denominator here? Why, that would be you. So, but... But, you know, so sometimes they've got to let go of those, of those past things. So, but also look within yourself and say, God, what is, what is it me that I need to change? What is it that I need to do to be, a, to be worthy of being a part of the church that you want our church to be? Maybe there are some things, some sins of commission, things you did wrong in the past that you need to change. Maybe there's some sins of omission. There are things you haven't been doing in the past that you need to start doing. And we'll talk about those more in our sermons as we, as we go through this time together. Third, be patient with the plan. The wall was not built overnight. Okay? It did take a while. In fact, I'll even tell you a little bit here. I, I, I don't know if I'll preach on this later or not. But when they finally got built to it, it says they built the wall. They did build it pretty quickly, but they only built it to half the original height because they didn't have the resources to do that. 
So sometimes even as you go through that, the, the plan changes sometimes with what God provides. So it doesn't say we're going to all figure it out right away. We may figure out God wants us to go here, and we get three steps this way, and then God says, okay, I want you to get there so that I could take you over here from this angle. So sometimes it will change, but we're going to work on that together. So be patient with the plan, and then finally, completely trust in God in all of this. God is the one we're doing this for. This is not for the glory of Fresno Church, not for the glory of any pastor that we might call, any staff member or any leader. It's not for the glory of this, this, this place. It's not so that people will look at go, wow, God has blessed Fresno Church. It will be so that through Fresno Church, people will say, wow, there is a great God. Not this is a great church, but this church is connected to a great God. So trusting him and, and following him, that's what I do. So I'm going to ask the worship team to come back up. I'm leasing a word of prayer. And as we come to this time of, 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 let this be a time of commitment for you right now, to start right now in that commitment of praying and confessing and focusing. Let's pray together. Father, it's, it's scary and humbling to, to lead a prayer when I've just talked about prayer of desperation. But Father, this prayer is a token of what we're going to offer you over the next months. Father, I do not know what all has gone on at this church. I do not know, know what's in the hearts of all the people here. But Father, I know that you do. And Father, I know you are the one who searches the hearts of men and women. You are the one who knows our every desire. And so Father, I'm going to ask right now that you would first point out our sins, our mistakes. Not so that we'd be shamed, but so that we can be forgiven. Father, teach us all right now about how much you do love us individually and as a church. Father, help us then to move past those sins. Once you have forgiven our sins and once we've forgiven the sins of others, Father, move us onto that area of trust in your direction that we may be able to feel your presence. And Father, as we move forward to your perfect future, we may feel your pleasure. And Father, that you may may have a deeper connection with us as we worship you and you may inhabit the praises and the worship of your people as you've said and then father we commit to follow you wherever you want us to go so that we can be the church you have called us to be father so that all this community and even beyond that like in Guyana or wherever it may be because of the work of the people you have raised up here at Fresno Church the world may know that Jesus Christ is alive and that he may be lifted up, Father, so that he can give all the glory to you, Father, for you deserve all of it. And Father, we trust in you. Lead us, Father, and we will follow. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.